Welcome to Hallel Fellowship, found on the internet at hallel.info. That's H-A-L-L-E-L dot I-N-F-O. We hope you are encouraged by the following recorded Bible study to look deeper into every word that proceeds from the mouth of God and how they were lived out in the life of Yeshua HaMashiach, often called Jesus the Christ. Today we are going over the Torah section called Amor, which covers uh, Leviticus 21 uh, through 24, and we also picked up uh, parallel passages in in uh, Ezekiel 44 and Matthew 26 and Luke uh, 14. So yes, uh, starting out here, Deborah. Um, I just had some questions, and I've thought it often is that um, it says that the bride of Christ can't have all these things. I mean, I was thinking about the bride of Christ and then God's prerequisites, and we all fall short. So I was wondering how are we going to be married to Christ with, um, you know, all of the problems that we have? Because there has to be something in the law that um, allows Christ to come and marry us. Because if we're going to be a bride, there are uh, God's laws that are in place. So. Yeah, we, and we read about one here today in this particular yeah, passage. Yeah, that's why I'm asking your opinion. It's uh, Leviticus 23. It's called Day of Atonement. That's what does it. Yeah, because uh, one of the things that we're, we've been seeing as we go through like the uh, Paul's book, letter to the Romans is that we have been declared not guilty not because of anything that we could possibly do in there, but we have been declared not guilty. So um, it's very close to what uh, Yeshua said to the woman who was caught in adultery. And he says, you know, hey, I don't condemn you. Now go and sin no more. So thus, that weight, the debt that was against her was discharged. Yeah, so that's why I think that the enemy works so hard to keep people from these feast days saying that they were nailed to the cross because each and one of each every one of these are a dress rehearsal to what's really going on in the heavens to the people to show their honor and glory to God. So I know that you know there's a lot of people that believe they're Christians but they don't see this yet. Their eyes are still covered and perhaps like you said earlier the priest will do this, the priest will do that and maybe you know, when the day, the thousand-year reign ca- comes, not everyone is going to have the same function. Perhaps we are going to be, you know, I, I think about being a woman, but perhaps we are going to be some function in the thousand-year reign that, you know, I don't know what it is. It's a mystery, but I'm just, you know, that's always on my mind. Yes, uh, Rose. Yeah. Just ask, that would include every sin except blasphemy. Every sin except blasphemy, yes. Okay. Well, the one thing it's uh, Yeshua was talking about uh, blaspheming the the spirit of God. Why is that? Why is that when it talks about that being the one sin that is not pardoned? That is the only sin that will actually keep you out of the kingdom. Why is that? That is the only sin that will keep you from repenting. And the whole kingdom, the whole Torah is set up about repenting. Turn back, turn back, turn back. So if you treat the Spirit of God as something common, you are basically, to use a metaphor, you're being thrown a life preserver from heaven and then cutting the rope that would be pulling you back in by saying that the Spirit of God is nothing nothing special, nothing any, in, of any importance, because that is heaven's lifeline to us, saying, turn back, we have made a way for you, walk in it. And if you treat that as being nothing, then what is to call you back? Because you're not getting back because of your own merit. So if you then treat that as uh, nothing, then what way back is there? So as we kind of look at some of the highlights of this particular um, passage of Amor, so 
Um, one of the things that we can see is that this is part of a passage that starts in Leviticus 16 and runs all the way through chapter 26. So it is a section that's talking about living, it's called living in holiness, but really it is living in the other, living in the realm that is not like our common way of doing things, living in the kingdom of God, you could say, living up on the mountain in a realm that is different and other from the way of the things of the world. As the psalmist says, and David says, how I long to live in your courts, because that is the, the realm of the other. It is different from the way of the whole rest of the world goes, the realm of the other. Uh, yes, uh, Sean, you had a comment or a question there. Yeah, uh, because of the fear of the Lord, you do not want, I sure in the heck don't want to uh, blaspheme the Holy Spirit because that's the only one that's going to protect me from the other Elohims out here that are wanting to whoop my butt left and right. So don't want to be without it. Yeah, indeed. So one of the things we see in the, in the first uh, two chapters, Leviticus 21 and 22 of the section we're looking at here, is is talking about the otherness or the holiness of the Kohanim or the priesthood. And one of the things that we see is that the priests are held to an extremely high standard. They are held to an extremely high standard because, why? Because they're so important? No. It is because God has elevated them to that importance and said you have a specific service to do as it mentions several times in the passage we said hey you're you are presenting food for your god now question is god hungry then what is the food of your god what was that again our praise yes to bring the praises of our hearts, to bring the hearts of the people closer to God. That is the food. You might remember something that somebody said in the Gospels about that. Remember the woman at the well? And it's recorded there that Yeshua was talking to this woman from Samaria. Now, when you talk about Samaria, they are the realm of the other they had othered themselves. <laughs> they had othered themselves, and they had been othered by the people of, of Judah because they were the, you could say, half-breeds. They were people who had remained in the land, and there was some mixing of the land because one of the ways that ancient empires, one of the ways that ancient empires would subdue people is just that they would basically repopulate your area with somebody else. Why is that? Because if you have a cohesive culture and structure, and then you just import a whole bunch of different people with a different culture, what happens to the culture of the, the place that's there? It gets destroyed. Now, you can see in biblical history that there are some cultures that need to die. And that is what the situation was in Canaan. And in Canaan, because it kept referring in the word, hey, they're doing despicable things, but they're, they're, um, they're I could say, their abominations haven't reached the fullness yet. They're, the stink hasn't risen high enough for it to be over for them. But eventually, it did. It did reach the point that it was a time for that to end. And we read about it in the word, about the things that were going on in a valley smack dab right next to Jerusalem, where the reprehensible things that were being done of their next generation, the young children were being passed through the fire to Molech in the valley of Enom. So that was a <laughs> terrible thing, and it came to uh, be later on called Gehinom, Gehenna. So that idea of the burning trash dump started out as a burning place for the next generation of the people. For what? For what? The favor of the storm god, of the Baals of various forms. 
Tsiphon of the North and the various other ones. Yes. Uh, Alex, you've got your hand up, and somehow I, I think we're, we're, we're going to uh, Persia, or where are we going? We are going to Mesopotamia. Mesopotamia. Chance, All right, north. here we go. I am reading about Nineveh. Nineveh. And, uh, yes, Nahum, Nahum, how do you say that, prophet? He yes. was all over that one. He was all way. over it. Uh, Nineveh was going down after a thousand years of doing their own thing, and it went down. Yeah. But is it very was interesting. There was, there was also another prophet that went to Nineveh, you might recall. Yes, Jonah yeah. or Jonah went to Nineveh as well. And when you talk about uh, showing up the people of God, they repented, even down to repenting with their animals and showing sign of repentance. And that repentance, that mercy that was being shown on a reprehensible people because when you, you read in history about the the empire of assyria and the capital of nineveh are just absolutely awful and what they did to people but when they had the curtain call their judgment that was being brought to them they turned back they turned back around so in that's a really good place to bring that back in in this particular topic of the Kohanim or the priesthood because they, the people of Nineveh, were faced with the sense that the other had shown up into their backyard. The other, the kingdom of God. Is that, is that all, uh, Alex, or do you have anything else going on? Okay. Ah, uh, jolly good. Yes, even without the uh, fish slapping. Yes. But one of the things that we could see here is this: a picture of how the other, the other of the kingdom of God coming into the world, can be offensive, and it can also be preservative. Now, sadly, the people of God treated the otherness of the Lord as offensive. And we read about that in the book of Ezekiel. We read about that in the book of Isaiah. We read about this in these various prophets, is that they were, had a front row seat as the priesthood. They had a front row seat on the oracles of God the service of God, the, as it says here in the passage we're talking about today, to bringing the food of God, the praises, the hearts of the people to God. And they considered that to be of no effect. Yet you had a, a foreign nation that was the other. They were the far off, as the Apostle Paul puts it. But they had their visitation and they said no we will at least at that point turn back they would at least at that point turn back so thus when we go on further and we see about the priesthood and their offerings this was to be a picture of the ultimate priest the ultimate high priest and the ultimate offering yeshua so we then who are reborn into Israel, whether we grew up as descendants of the original tribes or whether we're grafted in. All of us are reborn, just like that generation that came out of Egypt. They had to be reborn before they entered the land. It was the second generation that went in. They were reborn through the sea and through the cloud that they traveled under. And so we, as this reborn nation of Israel, we also are part of this greater uh, kingdom of priests and a holy nation that's talked about in Ezekiel 19 and 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 talks about that. In Revelation 1, verse 6 talks about this as well, about this holy nation 
the set-apart nation. Now, not all of us have the same job or the same role in this priesthood, but the priesthood is all about what? We talked about that, the f- delivering the food of God or bringing people who are far off and bringing them near to God. We don't have all the same roles, but we have the same word and we have the same spirit of God. And Isaiah chapter 40 talks about that, and so does 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 16. talks about have the mind of Christ, have the mind of Yeshua. All of us have access to that. And as priests, that's what helps us to be the other in a world that is just common, nothing distinctive, nothing special of it. So then, when we see like in Leviticus 23 that these are the, his festivals, his appointed times, his special t- points in time, they're not just Israeli festivals, they're not just Jewish festivals, they are something that is a part of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of this royal priesthood going into all the world. And that these are weekly and monthly and annual memorials of what heaven has done in time, what heaven is doing, and what heaven will be doing. That's not only in the world, but that's also with us. That we also, what heaven has done in our lives, what heaven is doing in our lives right now, and what heaven will do in our lives in times to come both in our future and in the future of all time. So whenever we face stress or loneliness or discouragement or frustration or rage or dismay at the things that come upon us each day, these are the hallmarks that we can look back upon of what it is that God has done throughout our lives in the past, the present, and the future and see what he is doing in the world. So we always need reminders. I mean, you know, t- we talk about having birthdays and looking back on ourselves over the years and how we've changed and how the people around us have changed and the memories that we have of that. So these appointed times are just like that. They show us our progression through time. So and when we get these messages that, hey, we... We're different people, but we have been changed, and we continue to change. We continue to grow. We continue to mature as we face one thing after another and then persevere through those things so we become mature and complete so that we aren't just rattled by everything that comes along. Was it just in this past week they were talking about loneliness, and you know, whether it's true or not, some medical studies are saying that loneliness is as damaging to your body and just the stress that it causes as, as uh, some terrible things that you can do to your own health on your own body. I mean, just horribly destructive. And if you've ever been in a case of having just extreme loneliness, a feeling like there's just Nobody out there, nobody coming, nobody cares, etc., etc. You know how damaging that feels, that there's just no hope whatsoever. Now, uh, Larry, you had a comment or a question? I was thinking about the, the other uh, feature of, uh, of the feasts is that gathering together, yes. so there's no loneliness there. And also, it's practice for what it's going to be like in the kingdom. Yes. We have, to, we have to practice even that, I guess. Yeah, practice for what's going to happen in the kingdom. Because one of the things we see here that um, Yeshua talked about in Matthew 28, one of his last instructions to his uh, closest students there, Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. And Yeshua came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. 
And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That we are not left abandoned. So that is incredible hope. So we see also in Leviticus, um, now just actually a note back just a bit on Leviticus 23. One of the things that um, I hope you had seen when we were going through those passages, especially in Luke, that you saw in Leviticus 23 where it talks about, and it seems kind of strange because it mentions in there in the midst of talking about the harvest festivals, it says, don't harvest up to the edges of your property. Leave, as it talks about the corners, leave the corners of your property. Don't go through. And it's interesting in there, the, the language there in Hebrew is talking about, <laughs> don't go through and rob the land. Considering gleaning like a robbing of the land. Well, why would that be considered robbing the land? Yes, Larry is talking about it belongs to God. And that's one of the lessons that we see when we're talking about the cycles of like the Shemitah year or every seven years. You let the, the ground be fallow. And then every 50 years, you have a cycle of every seven years. And then seven of seven years, you have a cycle of the Jubilee year or the Yobel. And you are proclaiming a release. Now, it's very interesting that what are you releasing? We're talking about releasing the ground to let it rest, and you're releasing people who are in debt to you, whether they've sold themselves into debt, as was the credit practice of the time period we're reading about here, or if they sold their land. So you're going to have a reset of the land back to where they were before, so the things stay together within the family unit. And the releasing of people who had sold themselves for the debts that they had accumulated. And that the land is left to rest. So that is a very important picture of how we look into the world. Is everything ours? Or is it a gift? That we are given is a gift and it's it's very interesting when you when you talk with far, farmers today farmers still get it because they can do all that they want in planning they can they can plan what what varieties they're going to be planting if they're doing wine grapes they can plan what uh, varieties and clones of, of wine grapes they're going to be putting out there and grafting over to they can plan what they're going to do as far as cover crops and compost, and they can plan all of these things. They can even plan irrigation. But even with all of that, there can be something that they can't always plan for. This time of year is a pretty precarious time for the grapevines because when those blooms come out, is one of the most vulnerable times of the season. And when the shoots first come out and the, the grapevines wake up from their summer, <laughs> winter slumber, and they kind of go dormant for a few months when the ground gets cold. And when the shoots come out, if there's frost, oh, bad news for the crop that's going to come. When those blooms start coming out, when those blooms come out and there's frost, oh, bad news. If there's hail that comes out when those blooms are coming out, oh, bad news. And when the flowers start self-pollinating to then become grapes, if there's too much wind or if there's rain and something happens with that pollination process, oops, no grapes or you have fewer grapes in there. So even with all that, you can try and try and try as you might. But even in that, 
you still say, well, there are some things that are just outside of our control. <laughs> I can't, can't speed them up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you can, you can do some things such as pruning and such to maybe, maybe concentrate the efforts of the vine, but uh, when it gets down to harvest time and uh, you're facing the rains that might be coming and the grapes are still on the vine and they're not quite ready yet, you can't speed that up. So, lastly, we close out here and looking at uh, Leviticus 24. It's a very interesting thing that we see with, oh, uh, yes, Larry, before we can move on here further into Leviticus 24. Yes. About Leviticus 23. Okay. And verse 11. 23, verse 11. Where he says that um, they, wave, they have to wave the sheath on the day after the Sabbath. Yes. Which, which is after the, after the Pesach, right? So the Sabbath. That is the it is the day of, of uh, Passover, but then there's a Sabbath, a weekly Sabbath after that, and so I'm wondering which one they're talking about here. Yes, and that is a good question, and that's a question that has divided people for a long time, because uh, one of the things the the Sadducees were of the of the type that went with that position that it was talking about the weekly Sabbath, so that's their their view was that your counting for uh, Shavuot or Pentecost would always start on a Sunday and always end on a Sunday because fifty days seven times seven plus one is always going to be on the same day of the week. So thus starts on a Sunday, ends on a Sunday. Now the well, it's it it would be forty nine and then. 50 so it would it would still be this the, the same day of the week and uh, with the other one is main group was the pharisaical counting now their view was that it was when it talks about the day after the sabbath it's the talking about the first sabbath of the first rest day of the week of unleavened bread of matzot so that would be the 15th day of the first month so thus the day after that would be the 16th day of the first month. So thus the Pharisees took the view that it would be the day after the um, first day of unleavened bread. And that comes down and it's reflected in the Septuagint reading of Leviticus 23 when it says the day after the first day is how it's rendered in the Septuagint. So the understanding is, is what day was this referred to in Leviticus 23? It's the day after the first day or the first day of unleavened bread and then the day after that. So when you see that in the time period like you would have in the, in the first century and that year that Yeshua was crucified and resurrected, you actually had both countings aligned together because you know people have come up with um different time frames of how things go with this and that and the other but when you read especially the gospel of john that lines it up with what we call friday what we call saturday and what we call sunday is how the time frame was and that would work with both calendars because friday would be the 14th day of the first month and that Sunday would be the 16th day of the first month. And that would work with the Sadducean calendar. It would work with the Pharisaical calendar on that. So that, as I noted here, is a controversy that's uh, thousands of years old as to which one of those calendars it goes by. Now, at the, uh, the Pharisaical calendar is the only one that actually survived in that one. It was only really revived in modern times with the, um, with the calendar of the Karaites that revived that one. And one of the reasons why Pentecost lives on as a Sunday and always a Sunday is about, <laughs> it's a longer discussion now, is getting into the Quartodeciman controversy or the controversy of the 14th day which was a, the when 
Passover was going to be celebrated by some of the early believers. So that is a longer discussion in and of itself. But there was a disagreement there early. Was a, it was kind of late first century, early second century as to when do you celebrate the death and resurrection? And um, that alignment was, do you celebrate it always on the same day of the month? Or do you celebrate it related to the timing of Passover? So that, and this quarto decimin means 14th. So that's why it's been called the quarto decimin controversy. So if you, you get in there and you look up quarto decimin controversy, that you'll see the, the long history of that particular discussion as to that. But the, but the issue is, is that the modern uh, celebration of Pentecost is, tends to be unhitched from um, the timing of uh, Passover. Uh, yes, uh, Deborah. Um, yeah, you know, if you have things set in stone, but then, you know, if we're watching the moon and the stars like he gave these calendars, then we would know it's not always every Sunday. We would know that that helps us to pay attention because he's said to stay awake. So it seems like then you got to watch those days. It's not going to be every that right? Don't you think that there we're paying attention to the to the day, right? Yeah. Well, that's that's one of the the issues of it you're talking about. If it is the day after the first day, thus that would be sixteenth day, and that would um, flow be different days for each given year. Uh, Pamela, I I apologize. You've had your hand up there. Go ahead, please. Well, my discussion is about the hedgerows and the fields and the rice checks. Hedgerow means you don't see any more in our agricultural areas. Whereas in uh, Leviticus 23:22, it says, "Do not when you reap the harvest, you do not reap to the very edges. Right. Gather the gleanings of your harvest, leave them for the poor and the foreigner residing among you." Well, that's not the way they run agriculture in California. Uh, no, cer certainly not. There aren't even trees for the hawks to land in. You'll find them beside the road. Yeah. Yeah, the idea of uh, gleaning has certainly <laughs> gone, gone away in, in agriculture, modern agriculture. Yeah, and you look at it in the, in the, uh, from the airplane, and, and it's just neat as a pin, neat as a quilt. And that's not the way God wanted it. And so this doesn't bode good for the future. Mm. I think it, God would be very displeased the way they do agriculture. Yeah, interesting. So I, I guess one of the, the things that uh, you can summarize Leviticus 24 as is the light for the world versus the darkness for the world. And one of the pictures of the menorah is that it is supposed to give light through the night. And it talks about from sunset to sunrise. So the dark time of the night, it is to be shining. And shining where? As we talked about when we went through the section on the construction of the tabernacle, the menorah faces the table of bread. And this is a pattern, remember, a pattern of the things happening in heaven. So we see that the light of Israel shines on the bread of Israel. And that bread, 12 loaves, talking about what? 12 tribes, the people. So the people being the bread, that they are the bread offered up. So you see also that encapsulated as the perfect bread that came down from heaven, the bread of life in the Messiah. So thus you see that the Messiah and Israel and all of the people are wrapped up together. That the Messiah is the, the fullness of the body of Israel. And we see also that in this very strange thing of why we have in Leviticus 24 thrown in, it just seems randomly that you have this capital case of having a cursing of the name or 
blaspheming the name. Now, it is, it is very interesting. I don't know if you happen to notice in here that what was the nationality noted of the two people who were arguing? One was Egyptian, and the other one was from Israel. So who was the one who actually blasphemed the name? Yes. So very interesting when you, when you look at the, the word as it's put forward here, what is happening in the blaspheming of the name. So why is that actually important? Why is it important when we say to treat the name of the Lord lower and to say that the, the name of the Lord is lower? Why is that important? And why is it such a travesty that you are taking the name of the Lord lower? Why is that important? Remember we were, we were talking about earlier about um, the one thing that you will not be forgiven for, blaspheming the Spirit of God or treating the Spirit of God as something that is nothing important, just common, which is what blaspheme means. It means to bring it down to the level and say that it's really of no value maybe even less than, the, than common, nothing that's really interesting or important. So why would that then be about bringing the name, the reputation of the Lord down to say that it is of no value, no importance? Why is that something that warrants the death penalty? Why would that be? Same thing Lucifer did? Well, think about this. Remember our analogy of the, the, you're drowning out in the ocean and someone throws you a life preserver with a rope on it. And to blaspheme the Spirit of God is like cutting the rope. Well, what then do you do if you are saying that the reputation of the Lord is of no effect. Denying them what? Rescue. You're just denying people rescue by saying that that which is helping you, remember these are people in the midst of moving from Egypt to the land. They're in the midst of being rescued. And you have someone that is basically saying, you might as well just jump off this ship, jump out of the lifeboat to take this metaphor further. Because this, this salvation that is in progress here, taking you from the house of bondage to the land of freedom, that's nothing special. Nothing special at all. That's just like any of the other nations maybe worse than all the other nations. So thus you can see why something like this, in this particular context, is so incredibly important and why cutting people off from the source of their only hope in the midst of being saved is such a terrible thing. I mean, we've, we've used this illustration before. <laughs> when you're going through life-saving classes, you know, as a lifeguard or something like that, and you're coming up on a drowning person, what do you have to do sometimes? Push them away. Push them away because what they will do, they're, they're panicking. They will grab onto you and drown you. So you have to make your approach very carefully. So, you know, what, what you're doing here in the sense of dragging the name of the Savior in the midst of the salvation down is you are then cutting them off from the source of their help in the midst of being saved. Uh, yes, Larry, go, go ahead, please. Well, I'm thinking of the, pro the uh, very prominent expletive that we have in our society that people use all the time that's really making it very common. It's his title, not his name necessarily, but they say it, and, and, they don't, and it's not considered vulgar. All, there's other things that are considered vulgar. 
but not that. And I've always wondered about that. I've never wanted to say that myself. Mm. But it seems like a really bad thing. And it's all through our whole society. Even, even, even believers use it. Yeah. I mean, if you're calling out to God because you're in danger, that's one thing. But if you're just using it as a throwaway phrase because you're excited or, or because you're surprised, it just doesn't seem right. Yeah, because, you know, that's when we were talking about with the, oh, uh, yes, um, Marta, have a question or a comment here? I'll be interpreting. Sure, great, thank you. It surprises me because of the same thing we were talking about, and me and my son were just talking about this. I had an experience because I just uh, came back from New York. We went to go see someone really, really important in Connecticut of the, that's in government. And I told Abraham that when I was on the airplane on the ride back, I was just thinking about um, how important people, presidents, et cetera. And I was looking at the airplane and just how there's people with that capacity to make an airplane, you know, do what it does, just so perfect and people with intelligence. And I was just thinking how there's people just so intelligent, like presidents getting put into place and, you know, people of high, high honor that us like believers, you know, believers in Yeshua in the same capacity that we're believing in someone just so humble that continues to have believers and followers. And he's changed so many lives and to this day continues to change lives like as, he's, he's, as, as if he's still present, which he is. And, and us being um, believers in him are just so privileged to have that person, you know, Yeshua, our Savior, present in our lives, making, you know, all these moves that he's making just alive in our lives. And we're just so privileged to have him in our lives that he wants to instruct us to be wise and be those life preservers that are being thrown out, you know, across the world to others. That even us with, um, you know, no real titles, not being in government or in high places and things like that, but by the name of Yeshua and his power in us, that we're able to just reach out to presidents, to governors, to everybody like that, you know, and make a difference. Yeah, I'm into that. That we shouldn't be fearful and that we shouldn't be content of being where we're at, you know, and not have uh, any resentment that we're not known throughout the world or don't have a big house and things like that. Because I know that if I just keep listening to him and keep myself available to him, that that's all I need and that's all, you know, that I want. And I was talking to my son that, you know, our prayer should be that, you know, we shouldn't ask for all these other things, these worldly things. Um, but instead that our prayer should be just to have more and more wisdom, just continual wisdom, especially as we approach these last days. Yeah, I'm into that. And that's what I wanted to share because, um, you know, I just think we're really privileged to be children of the Most High. Yes, Amen. indeed. I mean, and yeah, what, what Marta brought out was uh, very important because as we were talking about with the menorah, one of the great illustrations that we say of how that pattern really meets, meets its fullness is in the opening chapters of Revelation where you see that the Son of Man is walking in the midst of the lampstands walking in the midst of those congregations and that those lights in the world and those congregations have really important lights but not all the lights are equal because as you see when you go on in chapters two and three of revelation you'll see some congregations really have their dependence upon the lord but then you see other congregations that are getting led off by some very ancient, <laughs> very ancient distractions and ancient problems that haul them away. You see reference to, uh, <laughs> I always want to call them the, the Nickelodeons, but the Nicolaitans. Uh, and you see also about reference to Jezebel. Now, a very interesting aspect, well, those two aspects and Jezebel and also brought back to Balaam or Balaam. So Balaam, Balaam, Jezebel, what are those things in common with each other? Well, Jezebel, what was she doing? She brought in famous for a whole host of prophets not of God, <laughs> not of God, but of other gods. And, and we're mixing them around and then persecuting the real prophets of God that were sent to Israel, trying to stamp them out from 
that northern kingdom of Israel, trying to stamp them out, trying to stamp out Eliyahu, Elijah, and also the other prophets that were sent, and definite force against him. And then Bilam, we read about him, we'll see him again when we get into Numbers, but that prophet again, and as we know archaeologically, he was very well known, this seer of Baor, this prophet of Baor was very well known. We actually have found a place where he had like large inscriptions and oracles of him and to him. So very well known prophet of that particular time period. Now the Lord spoke to him and spoke through him. And you can might say spoke in spite of him through it to actually bring blessing. And in the process of bringing blessing onto Israel was also a witness to all the nations that respected him. So, I mean, you can, you can imagine someone who has been a, a big spokesperson for opponent, uh, for opposition to God, suddenly then starting to spout an oracle blessing the people of God and speaking praises of God, the true God, not a false God or something else. And that kind of witness that that could happen to the world. But the point is, is, well, which part of that prophet's message would you take? The before he started being a mouthpiece of the Lord or as he is a mouthpiece of the Lord. And that is one of the challenges that of discernment that you see in those congregations in Revelation. So, uh, Deborah, yes, you had a comment or a question there? Yeah, I just wanted to comment. In the book of Ezekiel 36, um, you know, it says that um, in 36, 16, and I'm just going to paraphrase some and then read the other. It says that um, the people of the Lord, they, um, they defiled we defiled the land and we defiled by our conduct. It was like a woman with the monthly uh, unclean sight. So he said he poured out his wrath and he dispersed us among the nations and scattered us to this very day. We we're scattered. And um, it says that um, we had to leave and that's where we are. We're in the, we're out in the diaspora, I guess you call the word. And then he said that, um, but for our sake, you know, it says, the Lord says, because this is his words, not, it's not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm going to do these things, but for the sake of my holy name, you have profaned among the nations where you have gone, and I will show my holiness and my great name, which has been profaned among the nations. The name you have prayed, so we've profaned his name among the nations, and um, he's, he declares, which means it's a declaration that he will. I'm the sovereign Lord. I will show myself holy through your, through you before their eyes. So whatever God's going to do to us, he's going to take us out of these nations. He's going to gather us from all these different lands and countries, wherever we are, I believe. And he will sprinkle clean water on us and cleanse us from all impurities and all our idols. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit in you, and I will remove the heart of stone and flesh, and he will put his spirit in us so that we may carefully keep his law. And so when I read that, I think, that I don't see that has happened yet. So that to me says that something very profound, and I think right now us in these groups, we are right now here repenting. We are apologizing for our Sonoma County. We are apologizing for the, being the people of God, for profaning his holy name. I am, and I know we all are, and I, I, it sickens me, you know, um, am I part of it? Yeah, because I live here, and, and I, I, sometimes I don't know what, you know, I, I just ask God, help me to die like a soldier, because I know that if he strikes a nation, he even says in his word that, you know, he took the good with the bad, it's just the way it is, and so, I mean, this, is, this Ezekiel means so much to me, I, I just don't know what to say. <laughs> Yeah, and, and, and as we, as we uh, saw in the particular uh, passages that we were looking at in Matthew and in Luke and also in Ezekiel, 
you'll see that there is a message for the people of God to step up when you see the needs around you. You see it, the aspect of it with the, in Leviticus 23, with don't harvest up to the corners of your field. So basically, have provision for those around you. Now, each of us have corners of our fields. Are we plowing and reaping up and then going back and gleaning to get every single thing out? Or do we have any edges of our fields, the things that God has blessed us with, that we can be of a blessing around us? And for some of us, that blessing is time. The time to show up, to stand up when it needs to happen. Uh, yes, Tammy, go ahead, please. Yeah, I should have maybe spoke up earlier when you were talking more about that story in Leviticus about the, 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 the guy that was uh, executed for... Um, yes. You know, because he's from the tribe of Dan, right? Yes. So not only was his father Egyptian, but even his grandfather was not of the tribe of Dan, because it only mentions the mothers being yes. of the tribe of Dan, right? Yeah. So, so for several generations, his little family was not... On the father's side, at least, they were not, they were not Israelite. So um, it actually touches upon a podcast I was listening to. They're talking about Samson, yes. who was also of the tribe of Dan. Yep. And you also, then so they're tying in about Samson. And Samson is probably the worst, in some ways, he's probably the worst of the judges as far as the living example that he lived out. Here he's supposed to be dedicated as a Nazarite. And yet he ended up breaking all three of the vows in one way or other that you're required to keep as a Nazarite. You know, people wonder about like when he when his hair got cut and he lost. That's when he lost his strength. It's not because the hair was the most important thing. That was the last vow he hadn't broke yet. He had already broken the vow about not touching a dead body when he um, ate the. He touched the lion when he got the honey. He had broken the vow of um, of uh, not drinking, and so that when he was having these weddings, you know, he got married twice, right? So. So the hair thing was the last vow he broke, and that's why he lost his strength. And then at the end of it all, his last chance to really repent, he doesn't repent. He just asks God to give him strength for revenge. So he's not a good example. And it kind of touches on with this guy. So this guy is a tribe of Dan. You've got Samson from the tribe of Dan. And then at the end of it all, when you talk about Revelation, you're talking later on in yes. Revelation, talks about the list of the 12 tribes. Which one is missing? Dan. And the reason that... Dan is missing, it touches on another thing you were talking about earlier, is that the tribe of Dan was probably the most pagan, the most um, Canaanite of the 12 tribes. They went all, now to some degree, all of the northern tribes went all in with Baal and all of that. But Dan even more so, to the point that they were eradicated as a tribe of Israel, to the point that in the last days, they won't be there. All the other 12 tribes will show up one way or another but not Dan. So it's almost like their lamp has been removed from its lampstand. Yeah. Yes. So that's definitely a warning there about being, you know, continuing on with the light that God has given us in that. So, uh, Anne, do uh, you have a comment or a question? I, I was just thinking of Balaam and saying, you know, he seemed to be one way and then he turned another way and then he turned back another way. <laughs> like, don't halt between two opinions. Yeah. If God be God, serve him. And if, if, ba if Balak, ba Baal be God, serve him. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Mm. Yeah, indeed. So it's one of those uh, sobering things that the God can work through us, but we ourselves not actually become part of the family of God. Or as Yeshua put it, you know, you'll, you'll uh, make disciples for the kingdom, but you yourself won't go in. That's, that's pretty sobering. So lastly, I'll close out here with uh, just some, some pictures that we see each year as we go through each of these appointed times. But it's a good reminder of what these appointed times are all about. Whether it's Shabbat or we encounter it every week, of talking about entering his rest, and we see that example exemplified in Hebrews 3 and 4, 
where it's riffing on this idea going back to the tribes entering the land. And it says, you know, I swore my wrath, you will not enter my rest. And then in Hebrews 4, that's connected with Shabbat. Because where? That is where Israel will go and find rest. They would not need to go wandering around anymore. They would be home, so to speak. So you have this picture of a, as it's uh, come down into um, the culture of Israel as being, you know, Yom Shekalo Shabbat, or the day that is always Shabbat, eternally Shabbat. The Messianic era is pictured as a time where you have entered a time where you can stop with the struggle, stop with the toil. So that is something of what each Shabbat is a picture of because you look back and where it was first instituted there in the garden, and that was a time where mankind and the Creator were walking together. And so there was not the separation anymore. You were home. You were home with your family. And then we've uh, gone through the uh, Hag Pesach or the Feast of Passover, which you can easily see the connection there about Yeshua's death for the covering of sins, transgressions, and iniquities, and also about resurrection especially, which is the new life that comes through it. So it's not just about who we were that died. It is who we become has been born, that new life that's come out of it. And here we're in the midst of the Omer or in Bikarim, talking about the resurrection or the, this crop of the resurrection, this new fruit of the kingdom being brought in. And when we get to Shavuot, we see the double-decker pictures of Sinai and the Spirit together, giving of the words of God, the testimony, the testimony of the Lord, and also the Spirit of the Lord. So that is something where you see the two of them fit together, the words of the Lord, the Spirit of the Lord. And you see in passages like Romans 8, there's no way you can actually really keep or follow the ways of the Lord without the Spirit of the Lord there. Because if you are just going through the words of the Lord, what are they to you? Death. They are death. Like Romans 7 emphasizes, you know, you just take yourself with no covering or anything else, stack it up to the ways of God. What are you? Toast. Yep, you're extra crispy. But with the Spirit of God, you are, <laughs> with the Spirit of God, you are a new creation. You are somebody new moving on into new life with instructions of how to live. And as we get on to Yom Teruah, the day of blowing trumpets, a.k.a. Rosh Hashanah, we see the picture of the last trumpet or the, hey, pay attention, of the coming of the kingdom, the coming of Yeshua's return. And in Yom HaKippurim or Yom Kippur, day of atonement, the judgment day is to where you have those sins, the transgressions, iniquities, taken away and dealt with and not counted against us. Who were they counted against? Yeshua. They were counted against the Messiah, and he took them away. So thus, when heaven looks at us, does not see the sins, transgressions, and iniquities. Hallelujah indeed. Yes. So when we get move on from Yom Kippur to Sukkot, the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles, this is a picture of Emmanuel, God with us, the kingdom of heaven dwelling amongst mankind yet again. And as we move out, the other end, the eighth day, Shemini Yetzirah, the world made new, entering that new day. Hallelujah. 
Yes, the world may noon. The old things will be passed away. The death, the disaster, despair, sickness, all of that will be no more. Hallelujah. Please come quickly. You've been listening to a discussion at Hallel Fellowship. If you would like to hear more discussions or if you have any questions, visit the website at hallel.info. That's H-A-L-L-E-L dot I-N-F-O. Hallel.info. Hallel.info.